Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then we want to know what he said when he, what he meant when he said that. What he meant is everyone can come to the Father through Jesus. And we thank and praise him for that. Why don't you have a seat and let's, um, let's talk about living the life to which God has called us. That's what we're all about as followers of Jesus. He's the way and the truth and the life. We come to the Father through him. He wants us to invite others to come to the Father right along with us. And so he asks us to be the truth and to show the way while we are living the life. But what kind of life? got three, uh, three songs, uh, portions of them, three examples of, of different approaches to living the life. See if maybe one or more of them especially connects with you. Maybe the good life isn't really so good after all if it just lets you hide all the sadness you feel. Maybe there's a better way. How about this one? not it. <laughs> I am not recommending living the wild life. How about this one? And in this crazy life and through these crazy times it's you, it's you. You make me sing your every line, your every word, your everything. every song and I sing along cause you're my everything that's the one that's the one for us now uh, this this song was certainly not written about Jesus but if you think about Jesus and read the refrain it could have been. Reminds me, anyway, of him 
and us in this crazy life, in these crazy times. Jesus, it's you, it's you. You make me sing. You're, you're every line, you're every word, you're my everything. Because you're my everything. Here's the way I see it. People want the good life, sometimes live the wild life, but what we really need is the crazy life. By crazy, I mean unorthodox, unexpected, not like everyone else would live. Uh, last week, I introduced you to something called the so-called letter of Diognetus. You know, you're all fascinated by that. We're going to hear some more from the author of this letter. That's this title, the so-called letter to Diognetus. It was written a hundred and some years after the time of Jesus, written by a Christian, but to somebody who was not a Christian. And this author, we don't know who he was, of, of the so-called letter to, to Diognetus gives us uh, the two main points in our sermon outline today, that Jesus is the way to life, new life. But he also tells us that Jesus modeled a new way of life. He is the way to new life. The, the writer to the so-called letter to Diognetus says that, that Jesus made the unrighteous righteous, that he turned sinners into saints, that he transformed the ungodly into his followers. Jesus did what no one had done before him or has ever done since him. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And then he died a gruesome, sacrificial death. Simply out of love for those whom he had created, but who had turned against him. Talk about crazy. He gave up his life in order to give us new life. He invites all to follow him. He gives everybody access to his Father through faith in the Son. He's the way to life. He also introduces a new way of life. The fascinating verse in Acts chapter 17. Paul and Silas have traveled to Thessalonica, that's a city. And when they get there, they are not met with open arms. In fact, some of the leading citizens, the, uh, the merchants especially in Thessalonica, say about Paul and Silas, this thing that's, that's on the screens, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Do you wonder how they turned the world upside down? They did not lead a, an armed revolution. 
They did not have some kind of sit-down strike where they, where they closed the roads to the marketplaces. They did not refuse to pay taxes. They did not encourage others to refuse to pay taxes. They did one thing. They lived the life. What that means is they acknowledged and proclaimed Jesus to be the Savior. And they patterned their life after his. Following his example. Back to the so-called letter of Diognetus. This Christian is talking about Jesus, and then he's talking about the followers of Jesus. And he says of them, and this is quoted in your excuse me, this is quoted in your in your outline. And one of the reasons I put that in there is I wanted to put uh, the book from which a lot of this comes in there uh, because did anybody buy it after last week? Still on sale at Amazon for $15. I really do highly recommend it. Um, and the, the so-called letter to Diognetus is, is uh, talked about in there. But what, what this letter says about these Christians, if they imitated Jesus... Masters would turn into servants. How crazy is that? The strong would care for the weak. The wealthy would honor the poor. And you know what? That's what happened. And that is how they turned the world upside down. Also quoting from the so-called letter, to Diognetus, he says of them, Christians marry like everyone else. Remember last week, if you were here, we talked about the fact that in a lot of ways, Christians just kind of blended into society, although there were some things that were very, very different about them. So they did what, not any of the sinful things, but they, in the early church, they, they did what others were doing. They, they married like everyone else, and, and they beget children but they do not cast out their offspring. Because that was happening. That happened a lot. Not among the Christians. Among the pagans, especially among the Romans. Imagine that. He also said of the Christians, they share their board, their food with each other, but not their marriage bed. Again. A very unusual thing in those days. Immorality was unbelievable. Early Christians lived the crazy life. 180 degrees out from the rest of the world at that time. Which is alarmingly similar to the world of our time. Here's what they did already talked about a couple of them. Well, this first one we didn't talk about, but it happened. They killed infants in the womb before they were born. And then if, if they were born and they didn't want them, then they exposed them to the elements to die after they were born. No such thing as charity in those days. Completely non-existent. Everyone for himself. Survival of the fittest. Might determined right 
not anything else. Women, children, slaves had no standing in courts or in the society. And as I said, immorality was rampant. Early Christians turned all of that on its head, turned the world upside down by what they did, the way they acted, because they followed Jesus and they imitated him. They lived the crazy, self-sacrificing, putting others ahead of themselves life. There's a, a great story that's, that's told in the, uh, in the book, Resilient Faith, how the early Christian church, uh, how the early Christian third way, that's what we talked about last week, changed the world. And we're going to turn to that, uh, an account in that book in just a minute. There's something, this is in your sermon outline as well, something uh, that took place for 20 years during the, uh, from 250 to 270 AD, something called the Plague of Cyprian. He didn't cause it. That's him on the screen. It's called the Plague of Cyprian because he was the one who talked about it, who preached to people about it, and who rallied people to help those who were suffering so tremendously during this terrible, terrible plague. I'll just give you a few facts about it. You know, it was a long time ago, and they didn't keep such accurate records, so some of these are estimates. But they're estimating that perhaps 20, can you imagine that? 20% of the population died in those 20 years from this plague. It might have been Ebola, they think, or maybe smallpox, they really don't know. In the city of Rome alone, 5,000 people every day died. For the Christians, this became a double whammy because they certainly were not immune to this plague. But the Romans, you know, were very superstitious, and so they, so they, uh, they put out an empire-wide order that people, everybody needed to, to pray to the gods to remove this plague. And of course, the Christians said, we can't do that. We'll pray to God, but we're not going to pray to idols. And so they were persecuted, considered to be enemies of the state because they wouldn't pray to the gods to end the plague. There were widespread food shortages. The farmers were dying. They, or they were too sick to plant their crops or harvest their crops. I just can't imagine what this was like. Armies were decimated. Um, it spread throughout spread throughout modern-day Europe and Africa. And I'm just, now I'm just going to put a, a picture on the screen that uh, somebody, I don't know how to pronounce his name, how he depicted this um, at one point. Uh, the, the, there's, a, there's a marvelous, if you can call it that, account of what happened during this, this plague of Cyprian in, in that uh, book, uh, Resilient Faith. And I would love to read it to you, but I don't think that's a good idea with my voice. But I happen to have a lovely assistant who has um, agreed to, to read this. So my wife Karen's going to come up and read this account for you while I rest my voice a little. Uh, 
Good morning. One notable example concerns a plague that swept through the ancient world in AD 250. It is hard to determine the exact number of deaths, but scholars estimate that up to a fifth of the population of the empire died. At the height of the epidemic, thousands perished daily in the city of Rome alone. That fatality rate was so high that some cities fell into ruin. Military campaigns had to be stopped. It tested the mettle of the empire, and it tested the faith of Christians. Dianthius, Bishop of Alexandria, wrote in an Easter message, and this is a direct quote, out of the blue came this disease, a thing more terrifying than any terror, more frightful than any disaster whatever. Another writer described it as incomprehensibly dreadful. It invaded every home, killing too many people to count. The impact was catastrophic. A quote, all were shuddering, fleeing, shunning the contagion, impiously exposing their own friends, as if with the exclusion of the person who was sure to die of the plague, one could exclude death itself also. No one regarded anything except himself. Many bishops used the pulpit to address the hard questions that inevitably surfaced on such occasions and to provide comfort and hope. They preached on such themes as God's sovereignty, the suffering of Jesus, the last judgment, and the resurrection of the dead. They also interpreted the catastrophe as a kind of divine test. Cyprian asked his congregation whether they would show the same kind of generosity to victims that God extends to the least deserving. Jesus taught that God causes the sun to rise and set for everyone's benefit and sends forth rain to nourish everyone's crops, showing kindness to friends and enemies alike. I quote, should not one who professes to be a son of God imitate the example of his father? The Christian faith made a practical difference in the lives of people, offering hope in the face of acute suffering and calling people to serve the afflicted. In general, Christians faced the plagues with courage, nursed the sick, and buried the dead. They believed that because God loved them as undeserving as they were, they were duty-bound to love others. Again, the contrast between Christians and Romans was noticeable, at least according to Christian observers. Cyprian, for example, charged Christians to care for everyone, and not simply Christians. He proclaimed, I quote, that there was nothing wonderful in our cherishing only our own people with the needed attention of love. Dionysius wrote moving of the sacrifices that Christians had made on behalf of the sick and dying. Christians, he said, showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them departed this life serenely happy. They, dis they discovered soon enough that, however Christ-like their behavior, 
they would not be spared from the same fate that had already taken the lives of others. Dionysius interpreted their sacrificial deaths in light of the sacrifice of Christ. A number of the sick had recovered while their caretakers had died. So Dionysius reasoned that perhaps the caretakers had suffered vicariously, dying in the place of those who had survived. It might have been faulty science, but it was persuasive theology. I quote, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Dionysius also mentioned that Christians buried the dead and they showed great tenderness by first washing their bodies and wrapping them in grave cloths. Again, these actions sent Christians apart from their Roman neighbors who would have nothing to do with the dead. A quote, the heathens behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt. So what do you think? Christianity must have been hanging on by a thread. Not only they're dying, along with everybody else from the plague, but, but they're also being persecuted by the Romans because they won't pray to the gods. How close do you think Christianity came to extinct, extinction in those days? It's a little bit of a surprise for you, maybe. Uh, take a look at this. In communities without a strong Christian presence, 30%, imagine that, 30% of the population died. How about this? In communities with a strong Christian presence, 10%, only 10% of the population died. Uh, Karen's going to explain that to you. Ironically, Christians survived the plague at higher rates than Romans, even though Christians were more willing to be exposed to the deadly con contagion. Why? First, they cared for the sick. Such care ensured that a higher percentage of the afflicted would survive, even if there were no actual cure available. Basic nursing care, sips of broth, cold rags on the forehead, tender back rubs, a change of bedding, visit from loving friends, strengthened the sick and helped at least some of them to outlive the contagion. Second, Christians who survived became immune and thus provided a workforce to healthy people who were no longer susceptible to the disease. These survivors made themselves available to the sick which in turn increased survival rates even more. Finally, Christians believe in, prayed for, and experienced miracles, which resulted from the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. Mir miraculous cures and demon exorcisms occurred with enough frequency to leave an impression on the pagans, 
who interpreted these manifestations of power as evidence that the Christian God was real. Thanks, son. A couple more quotes to end. Um, I did a lot of research on this after uh, reading about it in the book, and here's uh, one of the things I found online. It said, ultimately, this episode not only strengthened, but helped to spread Christianity throughout the farthest reaches of the empire and of the Mediterranean world. And then a scholar says, the epidemic that seemed like the end of the world actually promoted the spread of Christianity. By their actions in the face of possible death, Christians showed their neighbors that Christianity is worth dying for. Crazy, isn't it? Or is it? I think not. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.